coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and joining me today is my longtime co-host, Curtis. And we've got a fun show today for you guys, if I must say so myself, where we're going to be discussing and debating the bowl predictions for the 2020 season that you, our faithful listeners, have submitted to us over the past couple of days. And we've done this each of the past couple of seasons, I think at least the past two seasons. And we've really, we've had a great time doing it. We've really enjoyed doing this. So we wanted to do it again this year, but with maybe a little bit of a twist this time around in the past what we've done is we've rated each prediction that you guys sent in based on the likelihood of them coming out to be true, like on a scale of one to four. But that's kind of difficult when by their very nature, these bold predictions are naturally more than a little bit outlandish. They're supposed to be. That's kind of the nature of these things. They're supposed to be really aggressive with the small amount of information that we have to work with right now here in the preseason. So when we were rating them the past couple of years, we found ourselves basically rating all of them about the same as very unlikely to happen. So today, we're going to switch it up a little bit and see if that might work a little bit better. What we're going to do is instead of rating each bold prediction on that scale of one to four, one being like the least likely to happen or and four being much more likely to happen like we did last year. I think we did it the same way the year before. Today, we're going to rank each of these bold predictions that you guys sent in from most to least likely to happen. And look, again, guys, all of these predictions are unlikely to happen. They are bold, they are aggressive, they are outlandish by nature. But I do think that some are more likely to happen than others, maybe a little less outlandish. And guys, I also want to put this out there. Please don't be offended if we have the prediction that you submitted to us down towards the bottom of the list. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, I think that should be kind of like a badge of honor of sorts. That just means that you really took this exercise to heart and went big and bold like we asked you to. But to avoid offending anyone out there, any of you that were gracious enough to send us your bold predictions, and also just because there was some overlap with some of the predictions that were sent in. So for those reasons, we're not going to use names on this episode with these bold predictions, even though these were all sent in by listeners. We always use your name if you send in a question for our mailbag but for the purposes of the bold prediction we're going to stay away from that cuz we just again we don't we just don't want to hurt anyone's feelings like we guys we love all you guys we don't want to upset you if we put you down at the bottom of the list but you, I mean I guess you know who you are you know what prediction you sent in but I guess we don't want to have anyone feel like they're being called out publicly or anything like that cuz I promise you you're not we appreciate all you guys sending in your predictions and uh, yeah again these are bold by nature they're they're not supposed to necessarily be like surefire luck. So just wanted to put that out there, guys. And before we get to those bold predictions, I do just want to quickly remind you guys that if you do enjoy the show, let us know that by giving the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We are so very grateful for all of you who have already helped us out on that front. And every single one of those ratings and reviews counts. So the more the merrier as we get closer and closer to this 2020 college football season. But all right, let's get to these bold predictions. And we're going to start at the bottom with the prediction we as a team here on the Glory UJ podcast think is going to be the least likely of these bold predictions to happen. And then we're going to work our way all the way up to number one, which would be the 
of all these bold predictions, the one that we think has the best chance of actually happening. So we're going to start at the bottom, work our way up. And coming in at number 10 of the top 10 bold predictions that were sent in, we've got both Georgia and Florida making the college ball playoff and meeting in the national championship for the most anticipated football game of our lifetime. When this question was sent, or this bold prediction was sent in, I, I still think it's an awesome prediction. I mean, this is as bold as it gets. But when we looked at all of the predictions, this when we did our individual rankings, Curtis, this one came in last for us in our top 10. So why – and you had this one, I think. If you didn't have this one last in your individual list, you had it way down towards the bottom. So for you, Kurt, why is this – of all the bold predictions that were sent in, why is this one the least likely to actually come to fruition? Well, I think the biggest thing to me has to do with probably the fact of just that we're both from the same side of the conference in the East uh, is really why I went with it. Because, yeah, it happened a couple years ago when Alabama and LSU met. But I, I just see that being very unlikely, the way they say Florida or Georgia, one of the two of us only lost one game. And then whoever comes from the West is just so bad that the team from the East wins. And that that's why I just don't see it happening because the team from the West, whoever wins the West, in my opinion, probably Alabama. But they have to come in with like two or three losses, you know, at least two losses and still lose to whoever they go to against from the East. And that's why I just don't see it being very likely to happen. I don't see Alabama or whoever comes from the West having two losses and then also losing in the SEC championship game. And I see that as being the only scenario where you could take two teams from the same division. I mean, and the thing is, like, you know there's going to be at least one team from the ACC and the Big 12, more likely both Oklahoma and Clemson or someone. You know, there's not many teams in their, in their way. So, yes, it's there, the potential is there for two teams from the SEC to come in. I just seeing, I imagine it being very difficult for them both to be from the same division. Yeah, I agree with that breakdown. It's a great breakdown, and, I, and I'm with you here. That's why it's down on the bottom of our list. We were both kind of in agreement where this one landed. And, yeah, look, I totally agree. This would be a, a truly, like, insanely anticipated football game. Yes, it probably would be the most anticipated football game of our lifetime as Georgia fans, sure. But everything you said, Kurt, I'm kind of just going to echo you here. Like, for that to happen, for both Georgia and Florida to make the college, college football playoff, and you mentioned LSU and Alabama, yeah, they met each other in the, in the national title game, but that was in the BCS era. That was not in the college football playoff era. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it just it, there's no precedent for it yet in the few short years of the college football playoff. So, But for that to happen, for Georgia and Florida both to be in the college football playoff this year, then I think Georgia and Florida have to both be in whatever order it works out, but one of them has to be 10-0, and 0, one of them has to be 9-1 and 1 at least. And then one of them has to not just get to the SEC title, has to win the whole title, win the whole thing. And then you mentioned the West champ, has to somehow get in to the to the SEC title game with like an eight and two or maybe even a seven and three record and lose that game for Georgia and Florida to potentially both have a chance to get in the college football playoff. And that's just from the SEC standpoint. You're right. You also have to factor in the ACC, the Big Twelve. Look, I don't think the Big Twelve or the ACC is going. To, is I don't think either one of them are going to have two contenders for the playoffs. But you're right. You got to think at least one of the teams, whether it's Clemson, Oklahoma, Texas, whoever it might be. That's going to get into the college football playoff. And look, I, I, I just think it's highly unlikely that the SEC gets three teams in. I think it's highly unlikely because so, you could see a scenario where, let's say, Georgia beats Florida. And I know some people would say, okay, well, let's say we beat Florida the regular season. We go in the best, the only game Florida loses. Let's say we lose to Alabama in the regular season. We're 9 1, Florida's 9 1. We face Alabama, who's 10 0, or yeah, let's say 10 0 or 9 1 in the SEC title game. Let's say they're 10 0, and we beat them. Their only losses to us in the SEC title game. 
So they're 10 and one. We're 10 and one. Florida's nine and one. I can see that argument, but man, like, I don't know. That's going to be, I think that's highly unlikely at this point. Especially if any, especially if any of the teams from the Big 12 and the ACC are both undefeated. Yeah. I mean, like, Oklahoma still plays in the Big 12, guys. Like, is Oklahoma going to lose? Like, for that to happen, Oklahoma, even if we're nine or 10 and one, Alabama's 10 and one, Florida's nine and one. Oklahoma's going to have to lose probably two games. And yeah, the Big 12 the champion problem. or the ACC champion uh, would have to have two losses because one loss and, and the championship or a conference championship from either of those teams is going to get you in over, say, Florida at nine or whoever the nine and one team is. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And the, and the thing we're looking at, like, we're talking about this from a mathematical standpoint right now, but I'll look at it from another perspective too. Mathematically, I think it's going to be very difficult. But look, I just, I don't think that highly of Florida. I think Florida's going to be a good team. I think they're going to be an 8-2, and 7-3 caliber team. I don't. I just truly don't see Florida, even with the reduced playoff field here or the reduced number of teams that, can, that are contending for a playoff spot with no Big Ten, no Pac-12 as of right now, I just don't think that highly of Florida. I don't think Florida, even if they somehow end up winning the SEC East, because their schedule is much easier than ours. Ours is heavily front-loaded right now. And yes, we have Alabama on the schedule, and LSU doesn't look as strong as they did with some of the uh, the opt-outs that they've got right now, obviously with Jamar Chase. But even with that schedule, I just don't think Florida is truly a contender for the SEC or for the SEC title. Even if they happen to somehow look up and get into the title game with their easy schedule, and our schedule, I think, is a little bit more difficult. I don't think they're going to be Alabama, whoever comes out of the out of the West. I really, I just don't, which I think right now is going to be Alabama. I just, I don't think that highly of Florida. So I, I know, I just don't think that Georgia and Florida are both going to be in the College Football Playoff at the same time this year. Um, I guess if, if it's ever going to happen, this is the year, right, Kurt? With with two conferences not playing. Yeah, I mean, this would be the only time it'd really work into their favor if it was ever going to happen. Yeah, I, so yeah, I agree with that. I just. I just don't like look, all these predictions are bold, obviously. Like they're all designed to be bold and kind of outlandish and out there. But I think this is the one of all the ones that we're saying that I would go is probably the least likely to end up happening, just mathematically and the fact that I just don't think Florida, I think they're good. I just don't think they're that good. I don't know if they're playoff caliber good right now. All right. Coming in at number nine on our bold prediction list. So not the least likely to happen, but the second least likely to happen. We've got a prediction that was sent in that says Georgia beats Alabama twice. Kurt, you had this one way down on your list. So why is it so hard for you to think that Georgia can beat Alabama two times this season? I think in general, if you just look at history, uh, the history of Alabama the last 10 years, or really since Nick Saban's taken over, uh, they may lose to a team once, but it, they just it's been a long time since they've lost to a team two times in a row, especially in the same season. Uh, you go to Clemson, you know, they've split against Clemson in the playoffs or whenever they've met the last couple of years, like Clemson win one, then Alabama win one. They kind of go back and forth. And that's the thing, like Nick Saban is a great job of getting, does a great job of getting his team motivated for games, especially coming off a loss to that team or just in general, in my opinion, which makes the idea to me that like the way Nick Saban is too, the way he makes, you know, the corrections and adjustments and things like that. I just don't see you going out there and beating them twice. Just like for the most part, I don't see someone – beating us twice in the same in the same season either yeah look I agree with you I also had this one low on my list and for a couple reasons here number one you mentioned Nick Saban Nick Saban guys is I mean I don't really think it's arguable he's the greatest coach at least of our generation I would I would say he's the greatest coach of all time when you factor in like I know people say Bear Bryant Bear Bryant guys could sign as many players as he wanted to and he could just keep players away from other teams that would compete against him he would just didn't necessarily have to play them with the modern scholarship rules, limitations, 
with what he's been able to do at Alabama, like it, I think he's clearly the best college football coach of all time at this point, this stage. And when you look at a guy like that, you're right, Kurt. It's so tough to beat his teams twice. You look at that. You mentioned the LSU game, the LSU, LSU national title, LSU Bama national title game with the last question or the last prediction. That's a great example. You lose in the regular season, but you come get your revenge in the national title game. It, and I think that's a mark of all good coaches. It's just really tough to beat a good coach, a well-coached team, two times within the same season or two times within the cal- calendar year when you're using the Alabama-Clemson analogy there. And the reason for that, you kind of alluded to this, when you lose a game, you understand you lost that game because your game plan didn't work. There were things that you did that did not work the first time around. So you are looking – with a more critical eye at what you did wrong in that game, more so than the team that won. The team that won doesn't have as much motivation to go and look at their game plan as critically and try to change it. The way they look at it is, hey, we beat you doing this, so we beat you doing this again. So why are we going to change all that much if we won the first time? Whereas if you lose in the first matchup, you're much more likely to look at, at, at what you did with a critical eye and say, look, we got to switch things up. And so it's tougher for the team that won the first time to prepare the second time around, because you can almost guarantee the team that lost in that first matchup is going to do things a lot more differently than they did, they did in that first matchup. Whereas the team that won, again, they're probably doing a lot of the same things because in their minds, hey, we beat you doing this. Why would we change what we're doing? So I do think that's one of the reasons it makes it so tough to beat teams multiple times in the same season. So if we're able to beat Alabama in, in week four, that's great. That's awesome. But I would be certainly – nervous about our chances to beat them in the SEC title game. Obviously, that would mean that we are, are arguably better than them. doesn't always work like that at, at, at really any level of football, but especially college football. So, yeah, I think it would be tough. It's not impossible. I, I've told you guys all offseason, I think we have we have completely leveled the talent gap in Alabama. I don't really think there's a talent gap at all right now. I think in some ways you could argue that we have more talent. I think you could certainly argue that, especially, especially defensively now with what Kirby's been able to put together with that with that's just incredibly deep – very talented defense that we have. So I think you can make that argument, but again, it, the, the talent gap isn't big either way. Even if we have maybe slightly more talent, it's not much more than what Alabama has right now. So even if we beat them in week four, which I do think is really possible, it's just tough to do it twice. Honestly, obviously, I'd rather lose in the first matchup and win the SEC title game. I'd like to beat them twice. It'd be incredible. I think that's a tall task. Not impossible, but just a tall task. We just, just look at how things work when you have two relatively evenly talented teams and they have to play multiple times in the same season. Um, all right, moving on here. The next prediction coming in number eight is Georgia leads the SEC in sacks and interceptions. Okay, this is still the lower end of our rankings here. Why is this one down the ranking for you? I think more than anything it had to do with the interceptions that we're, especially at cornerback, we're pretty experienced and things like that. But you have to take into account losing J.R. Reed, who's for the most part was our big ball hawk last year. Yeah, uh, Richard had some nice picks throughout the season, but J.R. seemed to be the one that, for the, especially the last couple of years, got a majority of the picks for us. I don't have the stat off the top of my head, but um, just going off memory, I would say that. And so losing him, bringing Lewisine and things, and whoever may be his replacement, I'm not saying that he can't do it, but it's just we're replacing someone who's had a lot of experience and leadership and playing up there and doing it. So and t- and that that's the only reason I'm really going for it, is I'm just not. 
like the sacks part, I'm not that worried about because I think we're going to dial up some pressure because I think we trust our defensive line. We trust our inside linebackers. And we do trust our DBs, especially in the bump and run covers that Kirby and them have liked to run. So, yeah, and especially with the guys we have that can go after them, Aziz, uh, Nolan, Jermaine, all those people can get after the quarterback. So I'm not exactly worried about the sacks, even though our sack numbers haven't been super high, which makes you think that it's going to be crazy to go from where we have been all the way to number one. And so I think that's why I take into account both of them. I just think that while we may see a jump in sacks and interceptions may make a rise a little bit or something, I just don't see it being enough to catapult us to number one. Yeah, I think with my individual rankings, I had this coming at number nine. I just, I, I hope this happens. It'd be incredible. I just don't see it. I'm trying to be as objective as possible here. If you look at our sack numbers in the four years under Kirby Smart, we were six in 2016, six and 17, 12th in 2018, and seventh last season. We're, we're nowhere, like we're kind of middle of the pack for the most part, except for 2018. We were towards the bottom of the SEC. I, look, I love our talent. I'm with you. I love the guys we have rushing the passer. That's just a big jump to make in one year when you basically have, for the most part, the same personnel rushing the passer. You really do. And from, from an interception standpoint, I, I we were actually better early on in Kirby Smart's tenure. We had a guy like Dominic Sanders who was picking off a bunch of passes. I think he ended up tying Kirby Smart at some point. We were third in 2016, fifth in 2017, and then 10th each of the past two years. I actually think it's more likely, if you look at the numbers, that we would make the jump in sacks. So we're just closer to that than we are in interceptions right now. But look, when I, I, I've said this all offseason long also. When you're looking at the sacks, guys, it's not about the talent that we – it's not a talent issue. We have the guys, if we unleash them, that could get after the passer much more consistently than what it seems like they do from the outside looking in. It is a schematic, calculated decision that Kirby Smart and company make. They sacrifice the pass rush, especially on standard downs, in favor of ensuring – structural gap integrity against the run game. Now you can argue that we need to do a better job converting the uh, run defense to pass rush. I think we, we can improve there, but schematically we just, we don't send more than four guys very often. Occasionally we'll send five, rarely we'll send six. We do it occasionally because you can't do the same thing every single snap. We'll, we'll switch it up a little bit here and there, but we, for the most part, just about every down, we're going to bring four guys and we, we'll, we'll switch up which four guys are coming. We'll, we'll do some, some, some simulated pressure and those kind of things. But schematically, that's just not the priority. It's great, but I think Kirby, he wants to affect the quarterback more than necessarily get the guys on the ground. He's made that very clear. And you can't really argue with the overall results. Look at how effective our defense was last year, even though we were only seventh in sacks and 10th in interceptions. Do we want to create more havoc? Sure, obviously. That'd be fantastic. That'd be ideal. But the, at the end of the day, it's how many points can you, can you keep the defense from, from the, the offense from scoring? How many yards can you keep them from gaining? And we're doing a really darn good job of that right now. So I just – I think schematically, it, that's not really changing right now. You know, we talked all offseason long last year about Havoc, and we got a little bit more – a little bit – we improved a little bit with our Havoc rate last year, but nothing demonstrative. And with all that focus last year, we didn't really improve all that much. We went from 12th to 7th. I have a hard time thinking we're going to go from 7th to 1st. Again, just from a schematic standpoint, because that's just not the priority. That's just not what they're focusing on, especially in those standard down situations. I get why that frustrates people, but again, you just can't really argue with, with the results at this point. All right, coming in at number 7, we actually got a couple of these predictions that were sent in that dealt specifically with the wide receivers, and I, I get that. That, that this is an easy area to make a bold prediction considering just how woeful we were outside of George Pickens and Lawrence Cager when he was healthy at the wide receiver position last year. So this next one coming in at number seven, this bold, this bold prediction has us 
with at least three receivers that end up with 500 yards or more on the season. Kurt, we're, we're getting towards the middle of the of the rankings here, still kind of on the lower end. Why was this one a little bit lower for you? Uh, the big thing to me is we still don't know what the offense is going to look like under Todd Monken, so I'm, I'm just real hesitant, especially as we're working in whoever's now going to be the quarterback between Daniels and Mathis, that you don't know how, especially at the beginning of the season, how pass-happy we're going to be, uh, how many yards we're going to rack up. So I'm just a little hesitant to say that we'll have three guys over 500 yards when I'm not sure that we'll, we may have a 3,000-yard passer, but especially when you're losing two games, you're down to 10 games. You have to take that into account because now that's two less games of receiving yards and for some of these guys to go out and get there. And especially some of these receivers, I think, may have a chance to get some of these yards, especially later in the season, like Jermaine Burton and Marcus Roseme, people like that that can maybe some rack up some yards and make some plays, especially as they get more comfortable. They're, we're expecting them to step right in, and I just don't see that happening. So I like it's not like where they're going to step in day one like George Pickens really started from day one because we had to have him out there. We don't exactly have that. So outside of Pickens, I could see maybe another guy joining him in the 500-yard range. But I think just in my personal opinion, I don't see it being very likely that we have three. Yeah, that, that that's some great analysis there. I, I agree with you here. It's not impossible. Teams do this all the time in college football. With, with the way teams spread out and throw the football around the yard, this happens. This is not necessarily – it's not unprecedented at all. It's actually not even necessarily all that uncommon. Now, it's uncommon for us – because we just haven't thrown the ball all that much in the past decade or so. I guess you go back to the Mike Bobo years with Aaron Murray, we were throwing the ball a lot. But since then, not really all that much, especially under Kirby Smart here these past four years. If you look at but even as sparingly as we've thrown the football for the past four years, we've come pretty close. In 2017, we came really close. We had Javon Wims and Terry Godwin both went over 500 yards, and then Meekhole came in at 418 yards. So we were about 80 yards away from Meekhole there. We came close in 2018. Riley Ridley, Nicole, both went over 500 yards receiving. Isaac Nauta came close himself, going at, coming in with 430 yards receiving. So we've been close two of the last three years. We haven't quite done it. And if you look at – like I think there's something that could happen. I, I do. There's some, there's some bold predictions that we haven't gotten to yet that I think are more likely to happen. But this one I don't think is completely out of the question. I think this certainly could happen. But you're right, Kurt. The reason I did not have this maybe a little bit higher on my list as compared to some of these other ones that we're talking about here in a few minutes – it, there's still some questions, number one, about what the offense exactly will look like in year one under Todd Munkin, and also who the quarterback is going to be. I think this really largely depends on who wins that quarterback job. We know Dewan Mathis is in, is in this competition. He's in the thick of this thing, but he's a guy right now. I think the strength of his game is his athleticism, what he brings from a, a running perspective. He can, he's got a great arm, but he doesn't have the experience as a guy like JT Daniels does. So I think if Daniels wins the job, like this certainly could happen because he's more of a passing – uh, more of a pro-style type quarterback, certainly functionally athletic, but more of a pro-style guy, whereas DeWan's more of a dual-threat guy, and I don't know if he's ready to be a dynamic passer yet. I think he can get there. I don't know if he, I just don't know if he's ready to get there yet. We just don't know. We haven't seen anything from him, honestly, outside of G-Day uh, a, year, a year and a half ago or so now. So I think a big part of this depends on who wins the quarterback job and what does the offense actually look like. And also, how much do we try to feature George Pickens? If we're throwing the ball to George Pickens as much as I think we might – because if you look at what Todd Munkin's done throughout his career as offensive coordinator, this dude, one of the hallmarks of, of his play calling is he finds a way to feature his best playmakers. He did it with Justin Blackman. Um, he did it with Evans at, at, uh, at in Tampa Bay. He He's done this, and I think he's going to do the same thing with George Pickens. So if Pickens gets the majority of the targets, are there going to be enough targets to go around for two other guys to get 500-plus yards receiving? I don't, know the, I don't know if the answer is yes. 
I think it just depends on how much we end up featuring Pickens, which again, I when I in, in my opinion, I'd have to say I think that we may have be more have more guys in the 300 yard range where we're like spreading it out when you have people like James Cook and some of these other guys that are going to get some yards receiving. That I think it may take away the opportunity for some of the receivers themselves, like you know, the true wide receiver split out guys to rack up extra yards. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, you're right. I can see Pickens with, with close to a thousand ish yards, and then you've got Jermaine Burton and D Rob and Kiaris Jackson and maybe Tommy Bush. They're all right around the 300 to 400, like 200 to 400 range. I could see something like that for sure. Absolutely. You throw in Trey McKitty, although he's dealing with a, with a knee injury right now. I got, apparently got that scope today, so we'll see how long he's out. Hopefully, he'll be back before the season starts. But we're running low on time here. But yeah, I, I just, again, I'm not saying this is impossible. I think it certainly could happen. But it, there's just a lot of questions about the offense, who wins the quarterback job, how much are we going to feature Pickens. Too many questions here, not enough answers. Yeah, we'll get those answers pretty quick. So I'm not going to completely dismiss the idea that this could happen, but there's just too many answers or too many questions right now for me to have this any higher up on my list. All right, coming in at number six here. Now, Kerr, uh, I believe that you had this one pretty low on your list, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head here. But the next bold prediction is that Florida will finish the regular season with three losses. Coming in number six there, Kurt. So we're getting closer to where these are some predictions that we think are more likely to end up happening. What do you think about this idea that Florida, this prediction that Florida is going to end up with three losses? How possible is that? I just don't find it very possible just based on Florida's schedule. Um, you know, especially when they did not, however it happened, where they did not draw Alabama – um, from the West, I just didn't see it becoming very likely at that point. Yes, I believe they do play Texas A&M, which is going to be a tough game. But on the road. Without the, yeah, on the road. But once again, you're at, there's no, the, the amount of fans this team is not going to give them the home field advantage that you were expecting. Like, if they're going over there with the crowds packed with what's usual over there, I may give Texas A&M the advantage. But right now, without the true home field advantage, I just don't give it to them. And – LSU especially down this year, and they get them at home. So if LSU had definitely, if LSU hadn't had the opt outs, which say Jamar Chase and some of these other guys, I would say the possibility of three losses may be a tad bit higher. Yeah, this is an interesting one. The LSU opt outs really that influenced my decision pretty heavily here on this one. I I like I told you guys earlier in the show. I think Florida is a good team. I don't see them as a, a true SEC championship contender. Like to actually win it, I don't really see them as a playoff contender because I don't. If I don't see them as the SEC contender, I don't see them as a playoff contender. They got to win that to get in there. But if you look at their schedule, it's kind of it's kind of sharp and soft, man. It's pretty soft. It's not as soft as it was because they did get, before they added the the new teams with the, with the updated schedule because they did get at A and M. They, they avoided Alabama. You're right, Kurt. They did get at A and M. They have A and M on the road. I think week two in LSU at home in week three. So they're back to back there. But LSU, I just I don't think they're going to be close to what they were last year. I didn't think they were going to be close to what they were before the opt outs, as good as Jamar Chase and Tyler Shelvin were. But now with some of those key players opting out, like LSU, I think might be a middle of the pack team in the SEC West this year. I, I think they could potentially finish fourth in the SEC West. Potentially, I'm not sure what I think about Auburn, but I think Auburn might actually end up being a little bit better than LSU. Now I'm kind of revising my pick there. So. I think Florida will probably end up winning that game. I thought it was kind of a toss-up earlier in the summer, but now I would probably favor Florida there. I think A&M is going to be a tough game for them early in the season at A&M. You're right, Kurt. It's not – there's not going to be a, a ton of fans there, but that's already like 110,000-ish people down that stadium. So 25 to 30% of, of that stadium is a lot more than most stadiums 
And, and who knows, Texas, they're actually talking about having potentially more people than that, more than other states. So they can have more of a crowd, more of a home field advantage at A&M than maybe other places in the SEC. So that one, I might actually favor A&M in that game. I, I think we're going to beat them. You guys know I'm, I'm, I've been on that all offseason long. I think we're going to beat Florida, so I'll say that. So if we beat them, if A&M beats them, that's two losses. The question becomes, where's the third loss, right? Could it be at Ole Miss? Could that potentially be tricky to open the season with Lane Kiffin, the lane train coming into Oxford? Uh, they have no time to really prepare for what he's going to do. Yeah, they can look at Ford Atlantic, say, but they really don't know exactly what that offense is going to look like. What quarterback is even going to be the starter right now, whether it's going to be Plumlee or this going to be Matt Corral, because whoever wins that quarterback job, that's a totally different offense with those two different guys. So I think Ole Miss might be trickier than people think week one on the road there. And then you also got Kentucky and at Tennessee to end the season. I think Kentucky is a sleeper team in the SEC. I don't think they're going to win the SEC or, or even win the East, but I think they're a team that's going to be a really tough out for people. I think there's a t- they're a team that want to sleep on. That's how, that's how I would phrase it. Tennessee is good, and they're, they're at Tennessee. I just I don't know if Tennessee is ready to knock off a Georgia or a Florida or an Alabama yet. Maybe. I think the most likely thing they could be is going to be Florida. I just don't know if they're there yet. I'm sticking with eight and two for Florida right now. But I don't think three is out of the question. I actually had this one a little bit higher on my list. It's a little bit more likely than you did. But I think eight and two, I still think four is good. I think eight and two is the safer bet right now. But I do think they could lose to a Kentucky or a Tennessee or maybe even an Ole Miss in week one. No one's talking about that. But I think that could be a tricky game for them and not really knowing what that Ole Miss offense is going to look like under Lane Kiffin. But all right, let's move on here. Go to number five. We're smack dab in the middle of the rankings here. And this ball prediction coming in five has the Georgia offense finishing inside the top 20 in total offense in 2020 so kurt how do you feel about this prediction like is this something that could really end up happening could we make that big of a jump in year one under um when i was initially thinking of it i thought it was very outlandish you know very very bold that it could happen but now the more i think about it it is the potential is there for it to happen just because process of elimination, I feel like for some of these other teams that have been the teams that have set the standard for offensive production lately, is they're not playing right now. I mean, you got Ohio State who usually puts up ridiculous offensive numbers. The Pac, you know, the West Coast usually has good offenses, terrible defenses. They just throw the ball around with the West Coast style with, you know, people like Washington State, USC, and some of those teams out there that just throw the ball around. And so you are losing some of those teams that do rack up the yards in offensive production. So, with that going into account, I think it may actually be a potential for us to make that jump. That's I think I actually had this in my individual rankings. I had it higher than you. I think I had it coming at number three on my list. Yeah, I, I had it lower, but now the more time I've had to think, I could see it being not so crazy when you take out some of the other teams that are usually very high. And yeah. you I think people like Washington State and stuff have lost Mike Leach. Yeah. Ohio State's not in there. Yeah, that, that's why I uh, – that's actually why I – that's the main reason that I had this one a little bit higher on my list is there's just not as many teams to compete against. We're not There's not 130 teams playing FBS football right now. There's about 70-ish. things like 68, something like that. So there's just fewer teams. So I think potentially, yeah. I know it sounds crazy because we were not close to that last year, but I think with a new offensive coordinator, a guy that I have a lot of respect for, and I think Seth Emerson said it best on the interview last week, like – he, he kind of corrected himself. He's like, you know, he said, if, you know, Tom Huggins the real deal, and he kind of stopped and said, no, I know Tom Huggins the real deal. And he's right, because Tom Huggins has done it, guys. We've seen him do it at the college level, the NFL level, as a coordinator, as a head coach. This guy's done it. He's the real deal. 
Um, and we were 18th, by the way, in 2018. We were 18th nationally in 2018 with with Jim Cheney, a guy that a lot of you hate and still destroy as an office coordinator. We were top 20 with him with 130 teams playing FBS football. That's not the case this year. So I really think this is certainly something that could happen and it's very possible. I'm not going to guarantee it, but I had it pretty high up my list. I think for all the reasons we mentioned there, not as many teams, new coordinator I have a lot of respect for, some more skill talent built in around here. I think maybe an upgraded quarterback potentially, quarterback talent level at least. I think all those reasons would have us inside the top 20. All right, coming in at number four, another one about the receivers here. This prediction has Jermaine Burton second in receiving behind George Pickens this season. Kurt, how do you feel about that one? If I had to go off the top of my head, I think that the opportunity is there for him as one of the young guys. Uh, while Justin Robinson and Rosemey, especially Rosemey, may be the more pop- – I think he's close to being one of the better receivers of the group. The thing is, Jermaine Burton's position has allowed – is going to give him the opportunity with Dominic Blaylock's uh, re-aggravating of his injury, you know, re-tearing the ACL. It has opened the door for someone like Jermaine Burton to step in, especially with the season getting pushed back. Some of these young guys are going to have the chance to jump in earlier than they would if the season was starting now or – when it should have the first week in September. I'm, I'm not sure when the actual exact date was supposed to be. Uh, but that, or actually, for us, it would have been uh, Monday. That's yeah. right, because Labor Day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it opens a door for him. Now, realistically, I think that there is a potential for someone like Demetrius Roberts and some of these younger other guys to come in and make some plays, especially Robertson could be the guy to get the chunk yardage uh, with the deep ball and things like that that can always change a game if he actually can go out there and do it this year, if Monk can, can get him open and things like that. But of the three new guys, I think he has a chance, especially with Arian Smith's injury holding him back at, at the slot, to take a step forward and make some plays happen. Yeah, I, I agree with you here. I had this one pretty high on my list too. Like, there's just not an obvious choice to be the number two receiver behind George Pickens. I think that, that that job is open, and I think Burton's a guy that can play inside and outside. I think he has some positional versatility. But you're right. I think he's a guy that can play certainly ha- is more effective on the inside in the slot than a guy like Marcus Rosemey. He's kind of like what Terry Godwin was for us, yeah. where he, he probably would excel more so in the slot, but he's also a guy that could go outside and do it for you. Yeah. I think a more, yeah, that's a really good analogy. I think it would maybe a little bit more explosive version of Terry, uh, of Terry Godwin, but yeah, that same style guy can play inside, can play outside with equal, I don't want to say equal effectiveness, but can play them both and play them both. Well, um, I think he's the most polished of the incoming wide receivers this year. I, I, I do believe that. And I just don't think there's anyone that stood out that, that's on the roster that's had some experience, whether it's Kiaris, Jackson, whether it's D-Rob. I think Kiaris can be a really good player, and I've heard some really good things about him in camp right now, but we haven't seen it from him yet. Uh, D-Rob, man, we're waiting on it, and I, and I hope this is the year, man. I think with Todd Monk and his, and his desire to push the ball down the field vertically, I think this could be a big year for D-Rob, that money year for him, but we just haven't seen it yet. So those guys don't have a claim on that number two guy right behind George Pickens yet right now. They, they could end up being those guys. We don't know that yet. But I think Jermaine Burton, I, I think he has honestly maybe, maybe not as good of a chance as anybody because he is an incoming freshman. But I certainly think there's a really good chance that he'll end up being that guy as talented as he is. And we haven't seen him yet, but everything I saw from him in high school, everything I've heard about him from people I trust and respect, this guy I think is going to be poised to be a serious contributor uh, as early as this year. I, in fact, I expect that to be the case this year. All right, let's move into the top three, Kirk. Coming in at number three, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the week. This prediction has Kentucky beating Auburn in week one, then Auburn losing to Georgia in week two and starting the year 0-2, Curtis. How likely do you think that is to happen? I just said it's unlikely, and I think it. The, the reason I say it is because it's Auburn's first game of the year. It's not like you haven't had a time 
to prepare for this team that it's not like when they come in randomly throughout the year, you have the opportunity to overlook them. But when it's week one, it's not as even though you're playing Georgia week two, it's not as likely that they'll be overlooked because your coaches have put ample time into preparing for them. Yeah. um, I mentioned a second ago, I'm pretty high on Kentucky this year. I don't think they're going to win the East, but I think they're going to be an incredibly tough out for people. And I just have serious questions right now. And I've talked about this during the during this entire offseason. I have serious questions about Auburn's defense, which is what won them games last year. So is that offense with all they're losing defensively, all the key players, the uh the Derrick Browns of the world, are they really ready offensively to take that big of a step forward with a new offensive coordinator with Chad Morris coming in? to compensate for what I think they're going to lose defensively? I just don't know if the answer is yes. In fact, I think there's a better chance the answer is no than, than it is yes at this point. you got to factor in the, the COVID situation they had. They missed a bunch of practices over the past couple of weeks. I think they're back practicing now, but they missed a bunch of time. And I know there's a couple of weeks left to prepare, but it's tough to catch up on that time. It, it is, it's tough. So I think that factors into it. And guys, Kentucky, I've said it before, I'll say it again, man. They are extremely well coached, and they will be ready week one to punch Auburn in the mouth. And if Auburn is not going to be as strong along the defensive line, which I do not think they are, they lost most of the key players on that defensive front that were so good the past couple of years. I just don't think they're going to be as strong on the defensive line, and Kentucky wants to run the football. They might have the best offensive line in the entire country. Like, legitimately, guys, they might very well have the best offensive line in the country. I know that's easy to say because we won't think we have a good offensive line, but Kentucky is legit this year. Four guys are turning that offensive line that started 13 games last year. A really, really good offensive line. And with what they're losing on that defensive line with Auburn, man, I think Kentucky potentially beat them in week one. I, I don't know if I'm ready to call the outright upset yet, but I think it's certainly possible. And that's why I had this one a little bit higher up on my list. And yeah, I think we're going to beat Auburn. I think we're better than Auburn. So, yeah, I think it's not. I don't think it's out of the question. I don't think it's crazy at all, honestly, to suggest and predict that Auburn might end up 0-2 to start this 2020 season. All right, that brings us into our top two most likely bold predictions from our listeners for this 2020 season. And this number two bold prediction, it's a little bit more ambiguous. It's not necessarily stat-based, so a little bit different. But this one is that Scott Cochran, new special team coach, proves to be the most underrated on-field coach on Georgia's staff. Curtis, how do you feel about Scott Cochran in year one as an actual on-field coach at the college level? The one thing I'm excited about is just the energy. I mean, yeah, you saw it, especially as a special teams coach, but just to have him on the field is, I think, going to be tremendous for us. Uh, you know, uh, Scott Sinclair is definitely a high-energy guy, but he – He's not doing it all on his own now, and I think the fact that you'll see Scott Cochran bring energy to the sideline, especially special teams, which can be the one part of the game that can that they can special teams can win you or lose you a game so quickly. They can you know change field position, make a big hit on special teams, and all of a sudden that carries over to your defense coming out there pumped up after you've seen someone get laid out. Just all those things that can be triggered by high energy and high effort, and that's what, exactly what Scott uh, or I mean Scott Cochran brings out in his players. And I, I just think that that energy is going to be very, you know, it's going to be a lot of kids are going to pick up on it. It's going to be contagious. And I think that the more energy you have, especially with this season, without the fans, as many fans in the stadium, the players are going to have to, some of this is going to have to come internally. And I think that Scott Cochran is a type of guy that can help you create that internal energy. Yeah, guys, I agree with you, man. Guys, there's a reason Kirby brought Scott Cochran in. He worked very closely with him for years and years at Alabama. 
And yes, Kirby made a, 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 a bad choice, an objectively bad choice in promoting James Coley, the offensive coordinator. But when it comes to hiring position coaches, like Kurt, what position coach has Kirby missed on? Like of all his hires, has he, has he, missed, has he made a bad position coach hire yet? Um, it honestly doesn't feel like it. You can really. Tracy Rocker the too, if they don't work, one? he gets him out. He gets out. He gets them out of there pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like, just, I mean, I in general, he's just a good. He's a good judge overall, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, especially the guys that he's worked with. Like, we didn't know who Dan Lanning was when we hired Dan Lanning. I was like, okay, this guy's coming from Memphis. Yeah, a lot of people were not excited about it. Now all of a sudden, this guy's probably one of the the best young up and coming coordinators in college football that it's just a, a question of when he gets his head job. Yeah. I'm just praying that we hold on to the guy. And I didn't, I, I didn't know who the guy was, but Kirby had worked with him. And when Kirby works with you very clearly from a coaching perspective, he's got a great eye for talent. Cause like he knows you've got to be able to put in the time and the, in the work ethic that Kirby smart puts into it. You've got to be dedicated. You got to be committed. And it's hard to know unless you see these guys with your own two eyes and you're working alongside them. And so he does a good job of kind of evaluating that. And then, you know, he's, he's obviously taking some advice from some other guys, some of the other hires, Matt, Luke, a guy like that, who just have great reputations in the, in the industry, uh, Charlton Warren, great reputation in the industry. But look, I, I trust Kirby smart when it comes to hiring coaches. I really do. Now the promoting James Coley, that's a big miss, but Coley was a good position coach. He was a great position coach, actually a great recruiter. It just was not a fit as an office coordinator, but I, I, I trust Kirby bringing Scott Cochran. I lo- like everything you said, love his energy. That's going to inject some enthusiasm into the program. Maybe bring some of that we don't have in a position coach. We have it. You're right in the strength and conditioning coaches. But do we have a guy that's as energetic as Scott Cochran? We have some energetic coaches. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Shoe gets after it. Landing gets after it. These guys will get after you. But Cochran's a different level. Uh, and I and I and you're right, Kurt. Special teams is so critical, especially when you're competing among the best teams in the country for a cultural playoff spot. That margin is oftentimes razor thin, and special teams can be the difference. So I think it's certainly possible that Scott Cochran, and I know this is kind of an ambiguous prediction, but yeah, I think it's certainly maybe potentially unlikely that he ends up being the most underrated on-field coach. And I, and I say underrated because a lot of people just don't buy him as an on-field coach. A lot of people kind of snicker. Yeah, I say, like, if you talk to Alabama fans or people like that, they think it's an absolute joke to even hired him as a coordinator. Yeah, because Saban could have – he could have promoted him at any time, and he never did. And Kirby gave him a chance. And uh, yeah, I, people sticker behind the scenes. That's fine. And I, but I think Kirby, I trust Kirby. I think he knows what he's doing. And I think it's going to end up working out really well for us. I really do. So that leaves us with our number one bold prediction that was sent in by our listeners. This is the one that we think is most likely of all these that we've listed today. This is the one that we think is most likely to happen here in 2020. Of course, all of these are bold. All of them are aggressive. All of them are outlandish in their own right. But of all the bold predictions, this is the one that we think is most likely to end up coming true. And that is George Pickens breaking Georgia's single-season records for receptions, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns all in the same year as a sophomore. Kurt, why on earth do we have this as the number one most likely bold prediction to happen? We're talking about breaking every major receiving rec- single-season receiving record in Georgia history. Is that really going to happen? Well, first off— First off, let's be honest, the Georgia receiving history books is not what it is as other programs. So it's not like you're going out there and creating the gold standard of guys who, like all these consummate professionals that were top picks and left crazy amounts of num- you know yardage and receiving and touchdowns that is hard to overtake. So I want to point that out first off. And the second off, you'd love to look at what, how George Pickens ended the year, especially, you know, he made the play against Tech, gets kicked out. Against LSU, you, you could tell he was a little – you know, kind of learned his lesson after missing that first half. That was painful. 
He came out against Baylor. One of the best game. Yeah, it comes out against Baylor, probably one of the best defenses in the nation last year. With our offense as terrible as it was, missing our starting running backs. Um, you know, there's a lot offensive of people linemen. sitting out. Jake, yeah, offensive lineman Jake wasn't you know great at times. He, was last about year. he probably knew he was leaving already at that point. Exactly, and yet he. What did he do? He goes out there and sets crazy amounts of records, especially when they knew they were. He was being targeted every time, especially after the first couple catches. Baylor still went out there and was just try, like knew the ball was going towards him, and George was still making plays. And that's the thing, especially as we make the change in philosophy on offense. I'm not saying we're going to be super pass happy, but you know, Munkin's going to want to open up the passing game. So I think the one person that's going to benefit most of it is George Pickens. Like, yes, he will be targeted, but he's still such a strong receiver that. If you get him the ball one on one, for the most part, he's going to win those uh, those jump balls, and I think that's what's going to help him. Yeah, that's a great break. Now, I totally agree with you what you said about the just the records in general for Georgia's our, our receiving records. If you look at it, it's okay. So here's what he has to do. That that's an important for first step. The leading single season receiving guy, receptions guy is Bryce Hunter in 1993 at 76 receptions. That's the most receptions we've had in a single season by one player in Georgia history. 76. Terrence Edwards is the only receiver we've ever had to over 1,000 yards. He did that in 2002 with 1,004 yards. Terrence Edwards had 11 touchdowns in 2002 to set the single-season Georgia touchdown receptions record. Those are all very reachable for George Pickens this year. Guys, as a true freshman last year, he had 49 catches, 727 yards, and eight touchdowns. And in that season, he had three games that only had one catch him. He had five games with three or fewer catches, and he still put up essentially 50 catches, 727 yards, eight touchdowns. And if you look at, again, some of the guys that Todd Munkin has coached in the past, the receiver position, and I talked about how he's featured his best playmakers, which clearly George Pickens is our best playmaker wide receiver right now. Go back to Oklahoma State. Justin Blackman in 2011 with Todd Munkin calling plays, he never had a game with less than less than six receptions. He had eight games, a 99 or more yards receiving. He never had less than 50 yards receiving in a single game. I think all he factored all that in the fact that he was relatively close to the freshman. I mean, not close, but he was within striking distance as a true freshman. He factor in that he was a true freshman, basically missed a half of a game against Tech and a half of a game against LSU, and that basically comes out to a full game. And then you've got a guy in Todd Munkin as offensive coordinator who features his best playmakers. I think it's certainly within reach. I don't think it's crazy at all. In fact, I don't want to say I expect it, but it would not surprise me in any way, shape, or form if George Pickens broke every single one of those records. I mean, eight he had eight touchdown catches last year, guys. 11 is the record in a single season. He had 727 yards uh, last year as a true freshman. Not really our number one guy. I don't think 1,000 yards is out of the question. I really don't. I think the one he might have the toughest time with is maybe 76 catches in only a, a 10-game regular season. Maybe. That factors into things too. Yes, we only have a ten-game regular season, but if, if we get into the college football playoff, could potentially play up to four. Uh, what that would be to be in what uh, thirteen games? I think it's possible in a thirteen-game season if we get that far, and maybe even in a twelve-game season, maybe even eleven-game season. We'll see. But all right, guys, that does it for us here today on the Glory UGA podcast. We really appreciate each and every one of you that sent in your bold predictions we couldn't have done this show literally without you guys so thank you for that i know some of you might have noticed that the predictions that you sent in were similar to the ones that we read on this show but maybe we're reworded just a little bit and that's because we had a number of predictions that were sent in that were very very similar so we kind of just in those cases 
just put them together and uh, try to take elements from each person who sent in one of those similar predictions. So again, we really appreciate it, guys. It's a lot of fun to do. We'll have a lot more content for you guys next week. Man, we are getting closer and closer to the college football season. I mean, it's hard to believe next week we will be doing our SEC season predictions. We're really looking forward to doing that because that means the season is just around the corner. We also have our Florida Sky and the Enemy episode coming up here in the next week or so, which I know a lot of you guys have been looking forward to that. So we will have you guys covered with that episode here in the next week. So yeah, a lot of great stuff coming your way, guys. Really appreciate you listening. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always... Go dogs!